0: we have arrived at the final chapter of Romans. (laughs) We made it. And if you've read all the way through Romans before, you may have a vague memory that the book ends with a very long list of greetings. Paul sends greetings to fellow workers, families, apostles, people's mothers, households, and it's this whole list of ancient names, some more familiar than others. It is, in other words, that sort of passage where when you're trying to read large chunks of the Bible, your eyes kind of glaze over and you just skim right through it. But... At risk of becoming a full-on self-parody of a Bible nerd here, I think there's actually something really profound in this list of names when we stop to think about them. So this is Romans chapter 16, starting with verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in King Jesus. They put their lives on the line for me. It isn't only me, but all the Gentile churches that owe them a debt of gratitude. Greet the church in their house as well. Greet my dear Epinetus. He was the first sign of the Messiah's harvest in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives and fellow prisoners who are well-known among the apostles and who were in the Messiah before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in the Messiah, and my dear Stochus. Greet Apelles, who has proved his worth in the Messiah. Greet the people from the Aristobulus household. Greet my relative Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the household of Narcissus. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet dear Persis, who has done a great deal of work in the Lord. Greet Rufus, one of the Lord's chosen, and also his mother, my mother too, in effect. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the whole family with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, Olympus, and all God's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the Messiah's churches send you greetings. Now, the first thing to note is the sheer number of names on the list. I count 25, not including the and their family with them, and the and their whole household with them. The second thing to note is that there are five times where Paul greets a house. Verse 5, greet the church in their, meaning Prisca and Aquila's, house as well. Verse 10, greet the people from the Aristobulus household. Verse 11, greet those in the Lord who belong to the household of Narcissus. Verse 14, greet these five people and the family with them. And verse 15, greet these four people and all God's people who are with them. The reason this is significant is that it's likely these are the five house churches that exist in Rome that Paul knows of and that Paul has intentionally greeted each one of them. Paul is, after all, sending this letter as an introduction of himself to the church in Rome so that they might serve as a home base for his planned future ministry trips to the western reaches of the empire in Spain. We know that the churches of that day didn't meet in cathedrals. Michelangelo's ceiling painting was a long way off in Rome at this point. They met in houses, often large houses of well-off members of the church, Although a couple of the names on this list, according to N.T. Wright, were likely prominent households of Roman officials whose servants had become followers of Jesus. And so what we have here are five house churches. Practically speaking, it's nearly impossible that at this point any one of those churches was larger than around 20 to 30 people, and some were likely smaller than that. So if you do the math, that gives us a total Christian population of Rome at this point in history of around 100 total. For you demographers out there, that's around 0.01% of the population of Rome at the time. Which brings us back to the names in this chapter. Paul lists out 25 of them. At least a quarter of the Christians in Rome get listed by Paul in this letter. I find that fascinating. And I think it has a profound message for us as we embark on the next season of Pomona Valley Church together. One of my least favorite churchy words is clergy. It goes with its companion, laity. I hate these words because they create an artificial, and I think this passage highlights for us unbiblical, divide between different classes of Christian. There are the professionals, the clergy, and then the riffraff, the laity. And yes, not all churches that use these sorts of words would put the divide in quite so stark a term as that, but the divide remains. But what we see in this passage is not Paul greeting the professionals and waving a quick hand at all the rest. He greets by name 25% of the whole group, acknowledging them as essential workers in this building of the kingdom of God project. For Paul, there are different roles within the body of Christ, sure, different functions for different people, but there's no sense that some are doing church work and others are doing something different. And there certainly aren't one or two clergy who do the churchy stuff, so the rest don't have to and can just show up on Sunday for an hour and then go home. For Paul, there is a sense that we all make this church thing happen together, equipping one another to then go out into the world and all live as if Jesus really was Lord. The so-called laity are a part of making church. The so-called clergy also go out into the world. Not many churches today look at it this way. And not just when they seem to think that a prayer only counts if the pastor says it. When I was a young seminary student, I met this girl who was the first person I had met in this new land of wonders called Los Angeles, who actually seemed to like her church. And so I followed her out way, way out to the 909. What I learned was called the Inland Empire, for reasons I'm still not entirely clear on. And this church worshipped in this big open space called the Family Center. And after every weekend, an army of people would, unasked, start buzzing around, stacking chairs and rolling them away into a side closet so that the room could be used for any number of other purposes throughout the week. I remember one evening event that I had helped with and long after everyone had gone, I was bringing something back through the family center and I heard a vacuum running and I opened the door and there was the senior pastor in this cavernous empty space alone, vacuuming the floor. I made a joke about the glamorous life of a mega church pastor and went on my way. Fast forward a few years and Meredith and I were working in the youth ministry of another church of a similar size. It was our very first week. We had started that summer, and the youth group's summer calendar was in full swing. And so at the first big event that we were in charge of there, like any good middle school event, there was a huge mess at the end and supplies and food and everything you can imagine and probably some things you couldn't, all over the place. The time for the event to end came, and I may be exaggerating on how quick this time went, but if I am, it isn't by much. About 10 minutes after the event was scheduled to end, I looked around, And there were five people standing amidst the mess, and all five of us were paid to be there. It was a bit of a wake-up call. You can tell a lot about a church, who they are, and what they think it's all about, by what happens when the music stops and the chairs need stacking. And what I want to emphasize for us today, as we consider the reality that in Rome, fully 25% of the people in the church get name-checked by Paul, is that the dynamic that I'm naming, that it's not Meredith and I building something that you all participate in, but that we are all building this thing together, it goes beyond the practical, as if this were just some wise organizational management principle about sharing the workload, not getting burned out, or creating buy-in amongst the constituents or something. This goes beyond the practical of how to get things done efficiently. This is a theological principle, a vision for the church as formational. We are a church so that we might be formed into the image of Christ, and then reflect that image to the real world around us. We worship a God who is Trinity, three persons in one, who, when they created humanity, realized that it would not be good for the human to be alone. Why? Because the poor solo human would get lonely? No, because the job God intended to give to humanity was to reflect the fullness of God's character to the world. And a single person can't do that, not fully. And so now when the church is to take up that mantle of being fully human, formed into the image of God, and then reflecting that image, the church must necessarily be a team sport too. Because a church where only a handful are working isn't the full image of God. And so when the world sees that church, the picture of God they will see will be a distorted one, one that looks a lot like the consumeristic self-centered world that they see everywhere else. We want to be a church that reflects the true God to the world. That's why we follow Jesus into the world together, because that's where the true God is. That's why we want to find ways of following Jesus that are joyful and sustainable, because that's who the true God is. We want to sacrifice because the true God became human and died for the sake of the world. We want to be authentic because the true God cares about the real ordinary world and our real actual selves. We want to pursue diversity because the true God designed a world that would explode with color and life and variety. We want to value relationships because the true God is loving relationship. We want to be characterized by openness because the true God desires to be with us and to guide us. We want to do justice because the true God is one that hates oppression and cares for the vulnerable. And if we want to be that sort of church, if we want that sort of church to exist, we need to make it together. Not out of practical concerns or a desire for efficiency, although those are nice side effects, but because that is the only way we can fully represent the true God in our life together. Church is a team sport, something we do together if we want it done at all. And as we move into our next season as a church, it's good to remind ourselves of that reality. We mentioned last week that we feel we're entering a new season as a church. We've been on Zoom for over two and a half years at this point, and that has had some amazing upsides. We've not infected each other with COVID, for example. We've been able to welcome into our community people who never would have been able to join us in person, whether because of geographic or practical concerns or the even more serious being on vacation concerns. It's allowed us to be a safe, temporary place for people who haven't been able to find one of those where they live for whatever reason. We've been able to stay interactive and relational to a degree that has been quite surprising to us, really. And there have also been limitations to being on Zoom exclusively, including it being a very strange place to invite new people to. Meredith and I think that there is a way that we can test out a hybrid that allows some people to be live while still keeping those on Zoom a full part of the church community. we made some positive connections with a church close to our house that has a fellowship hall and children's space and a kitchen that we would need for the in-person side of things. And it also has Wi-Fi that would allow us to create a tech setup that would allow us to keep the Zoom side of things going. So starting in the new year, if everything goes well, probably January 8th or January 15th, we're going to start an experiment. We don't know of any other churches trying to do exactly what we're envisioning, but we have talked to someone who created a similar sounding setup for a synagogue Bible study. But we are going to start trying out an in-person and on Zoom hybrid gathering. Since this is an experiment, we're going to start off doing this once every six weeks or so, with other weeks remaining on Zoom to give us time to tweak and adjust any bugs we discover along the way, and to make sure we really are keeping those on Zoom fully included, which is important to us. If it goes well, we imagine increasing the hybrid gatherings in frequency uh, accordingly. We know that there are some people who listen to the podcast who have not joined us or don't regularly join us in worship. Our hope is that this hybrid model will be both enjoyable, interactive, and accessible for people near and far who want to find a community that is following Jesus and making church together. We believe that as we listen to and follow Jesus into this next season, that it will only increase our ability to include all who want to, near and far, literally or virtually to join us around the table as we follow Jesus into the world together.